We want to go to the Lord in prayer before we get to the word this, this morning, so please join with me. Father, we come before you today and we ask, oh God, that you would make this vacation Bible school a, a tool in your hands to build young lives, to prepare servants for your church for many generations to come. God, work in families through it as well. Give us alertness in these weeks, in these next days, who we can invite to VBS, who we can invite to the Easter service on Sunday, which we pray you will use as well. Be here as we gather next week to declare the resurrection and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Father, we call on you today again as you've instructed us for our nation and our state and those who lead our nation, state, and city. Father, we pray that you would be leading our leaders, that we might, as a culture and as a country, move in the direction of peace and prosperity and freedom and justice. Lord, we pray that you would work in, in the Congress to keep to get bad and evil bills from passing through, and Lord, enable them to enact those things that are good for our nation and good for your church. Lord, we pray that you would deliver us from this virus that has plagued us for so many months. Now we thank you that the numbers are trending better, but we pray that more and more we would be free from the sickness and the deaths and from the fear and the restrictions as well. God have mercy. Lord, we pray that you would build disciples on this day, that we would come to worship you passionately, connect with each other, caring for each other in community and impacting our world in word and in deed. And to that end, make your word mighty in our hearts now as we ask in Christ's name, amen. We are in Luke chapter 6, and uh, we continue. This is our third Sunday. Uh, Amber suggested it was our last. It's not actually our last. I've got one more after Easter, so we're not going to be able to finish today. Uh, but uh, four, four messages on the two houses, uh, that's what's ahead for us. This is number three. No fairy tale to start us with today. No little pigs or three blind mice or anything like that. But we read again God's Word starting at verse 46 of Luke chapter Six. This is also found in Matthew 7, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount. But we read from the Gospel of Luke where Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built." But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation, and the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. In our first look at this passage, we noted the difference between the two houses. The good house is built on a solid foundation. The two houses may look alike. They may, to the appearance of the naked eye, be just alike, but the good house is built with a solid foundation. The bad house that did not survive the storm was not, and the solid foundation for a life is located in the hearing and the doing of the Word of our Savior Jesus. Last Lord's Day, we begin to see how to lay a good foundation for your life, and according to verse 47, this involves three things, coming unto Christ, hearing his word, and then practicing what he teaches. Jesus says in verse 27 that the wise man comes to me, hears my words, and does them. 
So last week we covered uh, part one on coming to Christ, and we were on to part two, which is about hearing the word of Christ when our time ran out. Essentially, we saw last week that every Christian must be a learner, every Christian must be a, a student, every Christian must know the truth as it is in Christ, and this involves regular study and meditation in the Word of God. The unchanging Word of God is to be our rock and our foundation. That's true of every individual life. And the point that I come to now is that it is also to be true of the church as an institution. The Word of Christ is the foundation of the church. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, the apostle says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Tuesday joy last week, we saw that phrase, the household of God, referencing the church. And then here's what he says about the church. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The foundation is the apostles and the prophets. But how exactly do these apostles and prophets serve the church as its foundation? There's disagreements about the way they provide the foundation for the church. Some argue that they serve as foundation by virtue of their person or their office. That is, the office of apostle is the foundation. And, and those who see it this way therefore try to maintain this office in some shape, form, or fashion even in our current day. Uh, several Christianish groups seek to do exactly that. The most notable among them is the Roman Catholic Church. In Roman Catholicism, we encounter the teaching of apostolic succession, which says that the office and the ministry of apostle has been passed down through the centuries, through the years, so that the Pope now sits in what is called the seat of Peter. He is a modern-day apostle and is in himself and in his office the foundation for the church. The problem with this view is twofold. The first problem is that it leaves the church with a flawed foundation since these individuals were and are sinners. Second problem is that this understanding really doesn't fit the metaphor of our text. A foundation is not a dynamic, ever-changing thing. A foundation is laid how many times? Only once. You lay it once and then you go on to other things a foundation is laid just once. And you surely don't go back and monkey around with the foundation. In the process of building, laying the foundation occurs at or towards the beginning of the process and never again. And this is why the classic evangelical Protestant understanding has been that the, the apostles and prophets are not the foundation of the church by virtue of their persons or their office, but by virtue of their teachings and their writings. Do you see the difference there? This is really a critical distinction uh, for your view of the church. Is the church built on the changing men or unchanging truth? John Stott writes this, what constitutes the foundation is neither the person nor the office, but the instruction, the instruction of the apostles and the prophets. And where do we find that instruction, that teaching, that doctrine of the apostles and the prophets. Stott says in practical terms, therefore, this means the church is built on the Scriptures. 
which is the depository of the apostolic and the prophetic word. This not only fits the image of a foundation better, but it also gels with Paul's understanding of his own apostolic ministry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 10, he says, According to me, the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, or according to the grace of God given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Paul does not say, I am the foundation. He says, I laid a foundation. And what did he do to lay the foundation? Well, Acts 18.11 tells us exactly what he did when he was in Corinth. There in chapter 18 of the book of Acts, verse 11, he settled there a year and six months. And what did he do to lay that foundation? Teaching the Word of God among them. He taught the Corinthians the gospel. His instruction became then the foundation of the church. So without that, without the scriptures, churches are without foundation. One wonders sometimes why these churches even continue to function. Those churches that have turned away from biblical authority are lacking a foundation for all that they do. They have nothing to build upon. How do they determine what to do? Well, I guess that's done by, I don't know, majority vote. It's done democratically, the majority rules. The church is built on the sand of majority opinion, often popular social opinion. Truth is what the people say <coughs> it is. And to that I don't say, eh, I say phooey. <laughs> that is no good at all. That is rubbish. That is useless. That is worse than useless. But then there are the churches that build not on majority vote so much as on tradition. Tradition. It doesn't matter if, it doesn't matter if 90% of participating Roman Catholics today believe that priests should be allowed to be married. They will not be because why? Because the Bible prohibits it? No. Because tradition prohibits it. This is very much like the majority rules stuff, except uh, with traditionalism, you're giving a vote to those who are already dead and gone. But in either case, whether it's majority views or tradition, who is ruling the church? People are. Fallible, corrupted, foolish people. But Jesus Christ is called in the New Testament the King and the head of his church. He is the only one who is to hold supreme rule. His word is to be our law so that it doesn't matter if 95% of you feel A. If Jesus says B, guess what we do? What do we do? Are you listening? Thank you. We do B because we are a monarchy, not a democracy. That's how a church builds on the hearing and the doing of the word of Christ. In the book of church order in the Presbyterian Church in America, in the preface, there's this beautiful statement. It says, Jesus, the mediator, soul priest, prophet, king, savior, and head of the church, contains in himself, by way of eminency, all the offices in his church. It belongs to his majesty from his throne of glory to rule and teach the church through the word, that is the scriptures, and the Holy Spirit by the ministry of men, thus immediately exercising his own authority and enforcing his own laws under the edification and establishment of his kingdom. Christ as king has given to his church officers, oracles, 
ordinances and especially has he ordained therein his system of doctrine, government, discipline, and worship, all of which either is expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary inference may be deduced therefrom. End quote. That's a glorious statement, and it's designed to protect the crown rights of Jesus Christ over his church, to protect the church from being eroded at its very foundation. You see, there's a natural tendency for proud sinners to turn away from the word of Christ. First, they stop doing it, and having stopped doing it, eventually they don't want to hear it either. (laughs) They won't listen to it. And whole churches and organizations have expelled the word of Christ from their ears. 2 Timothy chapter 4. You may be familiar with this passage. Paul writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. And he admonishes him, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Some of you over 50, have you seen this happen (laughs) in the church in your lifetime? This is precisely what you can see happening in parts of the institutional church. We don't want sound doctrine. We don't want this Jesus to rule over us. And they get teachers who will quote from Star Wars and the Matrix and Native American shamans, but who have no thus saith the Lord for the people of God. The faith and the practices of these churches is not determined from Scripture, but from the whims of their leaders. About the greatest eight pages that I've ever read outside the Bible itself, I read uh, from A.W. Tozer an article that he wrote just before his death in 1963, and it was called The Waning Authority of Christ in the Churches. The waning authority of Christ in the churches. And in that essay, he essentially says that the modern church has slid off its given foundation. And although we give Jesus the title of Lord, he has no practical rule in many of our churches. But it really, uh, many of you have seen, I think, if you came through our membership class, I show a cartoon uh, that I want to show now. It pictures a church board meeting at which the guy at front says, our bylaws specifically state that the will of God cannot be overturned without a two-thirds majority vote. Uh, But sadly, it really doesn't even need the two-thirds majority in, in many contexts when most people, they don't know the will of God. So in their thinking and in their decision-making and in their deliberating, they overturn it without even being aware of it. We we can just ignore the Word of God. A.W. Tozer says we assume that what we want, Christ wants, and then we ask Jesus to help us achieve the goals that we established. He is desired as our helper, not as our king. And one can just hear The foundation's cracking. 
Remember the story I told about the church in California? I think it was our first Sunday on this theme, and the church in California uh, that uh, appeared to be lovely and beautiful and just as nice and lovely as it ever was, but it was unsafe, unsafe for humans to enter because in an earthquake, the foundation of that church had been cracked. And that is where we are today in so many contexts and places. The church looks super, looks impressive, but watch out. Its foundation is cracked, it is unsafe, and we are to be warned it is not spiritually safe to be in a church that is not about the business of hearing and then doing the word of Christ. It may be big, it may be exciting, it may have momentum, it may be growing, but it is destruction when the storm comes. Consider now a parable by John Warwick Montgomery. It's about the longest illustration or quote I've ever used as a pastor. So stay with me. Stay with me and try to follow along. It's from an essay he wrote called The Suicide of Christian Theology. It's a story. Once a corps of engineers was assigned to continue the building of a magnificent cathedral, which had already been under construction for many centuries and which had benefited from the devoted labor of great engineers of many generations. Now this might conjure up uh, in your mind some of the medieval churches that, that took many decades to build back in the day so that the original architect would be long gone before the church building was actually finished and the original corps of engineers would die off before the construction was finished and the next generation of engineers and architects would have to finish the church. And, and you note that the cathedral in, in this parable represents the, the church, not so much the building, but the institution, and the engineers represent her theologians and her teachers. <clears throat> Let's continue. But some of the new engineers began to question the architectural soundness of the plans. They said the plans had numerous errors and contradictions in them, and when asked to clarify by some of their colleagues, they pointed out that architectural styles were changing and that the plans erroneously presented old stylistic characteristics and contradicted current styles. In reply, a few engineers noted that this did not make the plans erroneous or contradictory in themselves, and it was the engineer's business to follow the plans, but the majority did not agree. They did not want to cast aspersions on the architect or abandon the construction, but they had, uh, they had recourse in a number of strategies. First, they said that even though the plans were erroneous and contradictory, this was not the architect's fault and should be attributed to his draftsman. Some engineers noted that the architect is always responsible for the work of his draftsman, but this argument was pushed aside. Endeavors were thus made to ignore the draftsman's errors while accepting the architect's true ideas as conveyed by the draftsman's plans. But since the only knowledge of the architect's ideas came by way of the draftsman's plans, this endeavor miserably failed and led to more radical suggestions. Uh, it's perhaps worth pointing out that during all this discussion, the building uh, really wasn't happening. Little building was, was taking place. He goes on, then the engineers argued that the purpose of the plans had been misunderstood. They were not intended to be followed as such, but contact with them would increase the engineer's inner sensitivity to true building methods. But one engineer's inner sensitivity did not produce the same result as another's, and when this happened, considerable confusion set in, and the tower of the building collapsed. Uh, 
A particular building engineer now suggested that everything in the plans was symbolic of the architect himself. However, it was soon discovered that if everything was symbolic and nothing literal, no engineer could determine the real meaning of any particular element of the plans. More disputes set in, and another section of the building crumbled. The people for whom the cathedral was being built were becoming more and more agitated. Many would not enter the half-completed edifice at all because of the danger of falling stones, loose mortar, buckling floors. Some were even crying for a new staff of engineers. And this made the engineers terribly nervous and excitable. And finally, one of them, to placate the mob, began to claim that there was actually no architect at all that the people for whom the cathedral was being built were more important than anything else, and that everyone was in as good a place, a, a good a position as the inaccurate draftsman to draw up the plans. Oddly enough, this seemed to infuriate the people even more, for they apparently considered it self-evident that the plans the great engineers of the past faithfully followed and the earlier work on the cathedral all presupposed the architect. They became violent and even cried that the engineers were destroying their cathedral and making a mockery of the engineering profession. Thus did the great cathedral eventually crumble and fall, killing not only the people who loved it, but the engineers responsible for its loss. Prophetically, there were a few engineers who right up to the moment of final destruction still pleaded that the only hope lay in following rigorous, rigorously the original plans, that the engineers must bring their stylistic ideas into conformity with the architects, and that deviations from their notions of style would not constitute genuine error or contradiction in the plans, but their voices were scarcely heard amid the din of engineering teams working at cross-purposes to each other, and the deafening roar of fallen bricks, and the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that cathedral, and great was the fall of it. That is not fiction. That is an older brother theologian describing the 20th century and the church in the West. And it continues. We're in March, wait till the summer, and then read the reports of the denominational meetings of the mainline Presbyterians and the Lutherans, the Episcopalians, and the Methodists. See what place the architect's plans have in those meetings, in the place is of no weight at all. May it never be so among us. Our architect, referring to our king and head, has given us a design. We follow it as a church, and we follow it as individuals, or else, brothers and sisters, we are building on sand. Now, we, we've seen that we must come to Christ. We must hear His Word. These things are essential for a good foundation and a good house. But here we turn the corner and we ask the question, are they enough? And the answer is, no. 
<laughs> a thousand times, no. A million times, no. And I think the Bible says it just that many times. You will not build a good house. You will not be ready for judgment day unless you also do the word and the teaching of Christ. So when you are confronted with the word of Jesus, that's the critical moment. How will you respond? If you put your trust in Christ and follow him and obey, your house stands. If you do not crash, down your house comes. James chapter 1, verse 21, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. Is there more? For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So James is saying the same thing as the Lord Jesus does here. If all you do is hear the word of Christ, if all you do is learn the Bible, you are nowhere. In fact, in fact if you learn the truth without doing it, Scripture suggests you're just heaping up judgment for yourself. Hebrews 10, verse 26. This is one of the verses we discussed in your class, Gary. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of, of judgment. So it is critical that I ask you, are you hearing and then doing what Jesus teaches? This is the foundation for your life. There's a lot of other wonderful things to learn. Things about hygiene, things about finances, things about getting along with people, but this is where it all must start. What is your Christianity? Is this what it's all about? Do you search the Scriptures to learn what your Lord teaches in order that you might believe it, in order that you might do it? Is that your religion? Is that the emphasis of your life? You may have a very nice Christian profession, but it's not possibly erected on the rock of hearing and doing. Many of you are busy in religious activity, but you use that. I've seen this done. You use that as a substitute for actual obedience. Your activities are fine as far as they go, but no good if you use them to justify a life that is essentially out of accord with the master's will. Church work can be a salve to cover over your cancer. So many just want to be redecorated by religion. They're not open to being rebuilt by God. In fact, they see no need for a foundation. All this stuff about Bible study and self-analysis and vigorous pursuit of spiritual objectives, that's not for them. Is it for you? So I'll ask, do you really want to know what Jesus taught? Many approach the Bible unwilling, unwilling to conform to what they find. So, guess what? They generally only find <laughs> what they want. I, I, I forget where I ran across that this, this week. A, a new quote, fresh off the presses for me, Upton Sinclair. You'll probably hear it again. He wrote this, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his sense of righteousness depends on his not understanding it. Let's say that again. It's difficult to get a man to understand something 
when his sense of righteousness depends on not understanding it. You know what he means there? Some, some don't read the Bible so that it will reform them. They read it so that it will defend them. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, we should examine ourselves constantly in the light of the Word, and if we are not reading it in such a way as to be examined by it, we are not reading it correctly. We must face these things. <clears throat> Do I take the whole message of Scripture? Am I taking the whole counsel of God? Do I accept the teaching concerning the wrath of God as I do that about the love of God? Am I as ready to believe in the righteousness of God as in His mercy, in the justice and holiness of God as well as in His compassion and long-suffering? That is the question. The characteristic of the false believer is that he does not face it all. He just picks out what he wants and likes and ignores the rest. End quote from Dr. Lloyd-Jones. How you read the Word, how you hear the Word, of Jesus does matter. We must read it with a willingness to follow, even if the following makes us different, which we don't like. Even if the following makes us uncomfortable. And, and this is not a call to super Christianity, just a call to lay the foundation for your life where it's supposed to be laid. Are you, are you seeking to obey Jesus or just be a nice normal American with a, with a few religious activity, activities thrown in? What really is your concern? What really is the heartbeat of your life? It is possible for folks to get caught up with the trivial. And I don't mean by the trivial, the bad, the terrible, the evil. I mean the trivial. We'll ignore the foundation, but we'll have the shiniest kitchen sink of anybody in the neighborhood. You understand what I'm saying here? Somebody will get... Uh, get all concerned that we sang a verse of a chorus one too many times. when his own personal life is a disaster. What I'm saying is this, if, the, if this is the foundation, make this your emphasis, your focus. Sure, care about all kinds of other causes, if you, if you like, the, the, the whales and the rainforest in Central America, but first, care about how, I don't know, how you treat your wife. Care about how you honor your word. When you give it, the obsession of your life should be, am I doing what my Lord told me to do? And avoiding those things he told me not to do. Care about other things, but never, never forget this. So, I, I don't know who exactly I'm speaking to out there in the uh, digital world, but I know who I'm talking to here. Congratulations, you're a hearer. <laughs> that, that much I, I know about, about you. I mean, some of you are not entirely tuned in. I get that. But all, all of you, to some extent or another, you're hearers. And I'm glad you're hearers. But that's not what it's all about. I, I know if you hear me preach, you aren't the least bit better for it. Necessarily. <laughs> in, in fact, you may be worse. You may be. I'm haunted by what God says to Ezekiel. Look at this verse, chapter 33, verse 30. But as for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses, speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, come now and hear what the message is which comes from the Lord. You may have said that to each other as you walked up the steps this morning, right? Come, let us hear what is the message of the Lord. They come to you as people come and sit before you as my people and hear your words but they do not do them. 
For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after their gain. Behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. They hear your words, but they do not practice them. There's no offense against me in this. Everybody's very nice to me. The offense is against our God whose word you ignore. Hearing is not sufficient. You are to do. You are to do. You are to do what Christ says. Now, that's not hard in the sense of being complicated. Matthew Henry says simply to do Christ's sayings is conscientiously to abstain from the sins he forbids, to perform the duties he requires. So, would you like to take a little test of your doing, not of your knowing, but of your doing? Here's what Jesus said. Luke chapter 6, verse 26 I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. You doing that? <laughs> Next one, chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. How about that? Are you putting to death self-will? Can you name some way that you are denying yourself to follow Christ? Ephesians 4, verse 25, lay aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. Are you committed to telling the truth? Even when it's embarrassing, even when it hurts, are you committed to keeping your word to your boss, to your wife, to your friends? Or do you just speak without meaning anything? Are you a doer? You know, Matthew 28, 19 Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. Are you using your God-given spiritual gifts to advance the cause of making disciples? Ephesians 6, 18. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. A lot of these don't need much comment, do they? 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. Flee youthful lust, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace? Are you vigorously avoiding sin and temptation, striving toward holiness? Deuteronomy chapter 6. These words I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. Teach them diligently to your sons. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. How about it? Are God's words in your heart, on your lips, being spoken to your children, and your friends, are they your meditation? Second Peter 3, 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Are you consciously pursuing a greater intimacy with your Savior? With judgment day honesty before our God, what do you say today? How do you score? These are some of the words of Christ. I could speak of loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I could mention Psalm 95, 1, O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. I could go through all 10 of the 10 commandments. Time forbids me all but a final challenge. Back to our story, the wise builder digs deep. He lays a foundation on the rock. He hears and he does. The fool hears, maybe, and does not. When the trial comes, when judgment arrives, destruction results. And so from this time forward, for the sake of your soul, I urge you, I plead with you, come to Christ.
Put your trust in him. Hear his word. Be committed to follow it, whatever the cost. Ever failed on any of these things we've talked about here? Huh? Any of you ever failed? <laughs> of course you have, which, which is why we need Jesus. Our endeavors to hear and obey him must always flow from having come to him, from abiding in him, from trusting him and him alone for our pardon and our power. We build our solid house in the confidence that we are not building it alone, but in and through the grace of Jesus. His pardon takes care of our past. His promise takes care of our future. His presence is our power to build well today. God, help us as we search our hearts, as we call on the Savior, and as we humbly seek to walk in his ways. Let's go to our God and call on him. Maybe there's sin to confess. And all of us, all of us must identify our need and cry out to the one who is our supply, the gift and the presence of the Holy Spirit, who alone can make us holy and give us grace to be those who come, hear, and do. And so, Lamb of God, identifying, recognizing our sin and our need, we come. Oh, Lamb of God, I come. Oh, Lamb of God, I come to you. And I plead with you for your grace, the pardon that we so desperately need, and the power that we need as well. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that our lives and our church would be built solidly right there. Make your word mighty from this pulpit, in our classes, in our small groups, in our homes. Make your word mighty on our lips as we speak it to coworkers and cousins and neighbors. And Father, we pray that we would be faithful to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Father, let us see those places in our lives that we have sought to shut out the voice of conscience, the voice of truth, because those voices sometimes, Lord, <coughs> afflict us and make us uncomfortable. God, we want to walk into your truth gladly and boldly, covered in the righteousness of Jesus and ready to hear and adjust and conform our lives, whatever we find, because your spirit is enough. So perfect us for your glory. 
And then use us, O oh Lord, that our house might stand, that the houses of our children, which we are enabling and assisting them to build, that they might stand, and that you would, O oh God, see fit to call forth many others to build on this rock where we are committed to build as well. Send your Holy Spirit. Fill us, empower us, strengthen us, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. For we pray in his name, amen.